Good morning. Are you happy campers this morning? You know, I think this is probably the first time I've preached when Peter's been here to listen. That's a little intimidating. So I'd really appreciate it if you laughed at all my jokes, said amen in the right place. Is that, is that a deal? Fantastic. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for everything you've done to us. Lord, you are incredible. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you that you've bound yourself to us. We thank you that you're present in our lives day by day and you're here by your spirit right now. I pray as we look again at the subject of covenant today, uh, Lord, would you just teach us things that we need to know, reveal things, uh, remind us of things. I pray it would go deep today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, two weeks ago, uh, Peter was sharing under the subject of covenant. Generally, last week, he talked specifically about the new covenant. Uh, today, I want to talk under the heading, a new covenant community. You know, this subject of covenant, uh, this concept, is an absolutely phenomenal thing. It's not just a theology, it's not just a concept, it's a reality for uh, the people of God. And I dare say that if we could understand even a fraction of it, of the significance of it, it really would revolutionize and change our lives positively forever. The fact that God, creator God, almighty God, has not been content to remain distant, to remain uninvolved with humanity with his creation, but how he, the perfect, infallible, incorruptible, infinite God, decided that he would intentionally bind himself, obligate himself, and promise himself to human beings. Not perfect human beings, but human beings who were sinful, who were messed up, who were inconsistent, who were fickle and rebellious, and at times very ungrateful. That's what God has done. We didn't have anything to offer him and yet he has come and made this offer to us. If I were God, I would not have done it and yet he has done it for us. God has paid an enormous price to ensure that this covenant could come into being for us. The new covenant is a promise that through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might have right standing with God, and that we might have freedom to know God as our Father, personally and intimately. It's an amazing promise, and it's available to all who'll have it. The Bible says in John 1 verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, if you love him, then you're a child of God. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what the new covenant has achieved, and it's an absolutely incredible reality. If you've not received Jesus, if you're here today and you've not entered into this covenant, this promise of God, then it would be my delight at the end to lead you in a prayer that would help you cross that line into that relationship with him. However, intimacy with God, relationship with God as Father is not the only thing that this new covenant has achieved. 
It's not the only thing. You see, when you became a child of God, you became by default and by definition part of the family of God. You see, God has many children. Did you know that? Thanks for your enthusiasm. Did you know that God had many children? He has many children. Can you say after me, I am not an only child? You, as a child of God, share your dad, your heavenly dad, with multitudes of other people. And that makes you not only a child of God, but a sibling with every other person on planet earth who names God as their father and and relates to God as their father. Of course, what I'm really saying in simple terms is that every other believer in Christ is your brother and sister in Christ, if indeed you yourself are a genuine follower of and believer in Jesus Christ. They're your brothers and sisters. The same covenant that you entered when you gave your life to God brought you simultaneously into covenant relationship with other believers. When I married my wife Katrina, I didn't just form a covenant with her. How many of you know that I also entered and became united with, in some way, her wider family. That's true, isn't it? So I inherited a father-in-law. I inherited a granny-in-law. Hamish, God help him, became my brother-in-law. I got in-laws. There were a couple in a car driving down the road, a country road. And just like most married couples, they had their fair share of heated arguments in the car. Why is it that married couples always have massive arguments in the car? Do we save them all up and decide, let's wait, let's save this one until we're in the car? Anyway, these, these couple, they had a massive argument. They were extremely annoyed with one another, and the inevitable happened. They decided, okay, we're not going to talk sensibly, so we're just going to be silent. You ever had one of those moments where you're sitting in silence with your spouse in the car, this never happens to me. I'm obviously talking from my pastoral experience working with people who are sinners. Um, but these couple, they're sitting in silence, not talking to each other, have this argument. They're really, really in a foul mood. And the husband, they're driving along the road, and they're driving along this country road, and they pass a farmyard, and the husband sees all the mules and the donkeys and the cows and the pigs and the goats in this farmyard. And he turns sarcastically to his wife and says, relatives of yours, honey? Uh, And she says, yep, (laughs) in-laws. Somebody had once said, what's the difference between in-laws and outlaws? Of course, the answer is that outlaws are wanted. (laughs) Of course, I personally have wonderful in-laws, especially any of them who happen to be listening today. But hopefully you'll realize that it would have been wrong of me to assume a relationship with my wife and shun the rest of her family. And similarly, we have to realize that a covenant with God has to necessarily result in a covenant with other believers. See, the new covenant, when it was instigated at the Last Supper, as Peter described last week, at the Last Supper, the disciples shared bread and wine with Jesus. But in doing so, they automatically shared bread and wine with one another. The bottom line is this. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have relationship with God and not have relationship with God's people. 
You cannot relate to God on the basis of covenant and refuse to relate to God's people on the basis of the same covenant. It is the same covenant, folks. It involves relationship with God and relationship with God's people. The two are inseparable. We cannot escape the fact that when we entered relationship covenant with God, we became thrust into, wrapped up in the family of God or what you might call a new covenant community. What do I mean by a new covenant community? Well, most predictably, I would urge you to turn to the New Testament to get an answer to that question. And most specifically, I would encourage you to look at the book of Acts, the thing that we're going to do just now. These are verses which you'll know well if you've been around the church for a little while. Uh, We teach on them fairly regularly. Um, But it's just a beautiful picture of New Covenant community, New Testament believers living in community. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what it says. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who believed were together and had all things in common and they were began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here, I think, is just a beautiful picture, a wonderful case study of what new covenant community can actually be. I want you to notice particularly the first verse. This is a verse that we try and encourage our home groups to to form around. It says they devoted themselves to four things. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Each of these things could be a sermon in itself, but I want to just focus on the second one this morning. This word, fellowship. What is fellowship? It's not a word that most of us would use in everyday vocabulary these days at least. So what is fellowship? How would we define it? Well, often when we're looking for definitions, we turn to the dictionary. So here's what the dictionary defines fellowship as. The Chambers Dictionary. Here goes. Friendly companionship. Friendly companionship. Sounds pretty unimpressive to me. I would dare say that Satanists can have friendly companionship. You know, they come around to one another's house, catch up over a cup of blood or whatever it is they do. Friendly companionship, it has to be surely more than that. So I looked up a thesaurus as well. Here's some other words that are synonymous with fellowship, apparently. Camaraderie, that's quite a good word. Friendship, mutual support, togetherness, solidarity, 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 or my personal favorite, informal chumminess. (laughs) Informal chumminess. You know, when Luke was writing the book of Acts, and he was trying to come up with a succinct definition of, of what these people were doing when he was talking about how they devoted themselves to loving scripture, to understanding the doctrines of the apostles, 
when he was talking about how they were interceding together, worshiping God together, praying together, calling on God together, and how they were breaking bread, sharing communion, sharing the Lord's Supper together. I doubt very much whether he also thought, and probably they indulged in some informal chumminess. I doubt that's what he was talking about. Probably it was a lot deeper than that. Actually, the word that is translated fellowship is a Greek word, and it's this word koinonia, um, which is a word you'll be familiar with if you've come through the according to the pattern course, koinonia. And it's actually a very difficult word to translate into English. There's not really an English equivalent that does it justice. But really what it talks about is a deep spiritual relationship with other believers. It's a sharing at a deep level, at a deep level. It's sharing things, it's sharing meals, it was sharing experiences, it was sharing burdens, it was sharing tears, it was sharing gladness, it was sharing aspirations, it was sharing successes, it was sharing failures, it was sharing life, and it was sharing Christ with one another. It's an absolutely beautiful word, very, very difficult to define in English. It wasn't the kind of superficial, nice to meet you, how's your week been kind of Christianity that sometimes we can live out. It was a heartfelt, deep, intimate connection. Koinonia had such a sense of depth and gravity to it that it was often the word that the Greeks used to define or to describe a marriage relationship. Two people coming together in the most intimate human relationship possible were often described by this word koinonia. So, if we desire to be a church that really lives out this koinonia, and we want to be, don't we? At least Peter does. We want to be, don't we? Then, how do we get there? How do we achieve that sense of deep community like these guys did? Well, I think they did at least three things, maybe in addition to the things we've already read. Here's the three things that I believe they did. First of all, they gave themselves to following Christ. And that may seem like fairly self-explanatory. And you may think, well, what has following Christ got to do with koinonia with this sense of community? The answer, of course, is it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. You see, relationships between people, even close relationships, are not biblical fellowship unless they're Christ-centered. They might be enjoyable. They might be beneficial. They might even be informal chumminess, but they are not the koinonia fellowship that the Bible talks about. Listen to these verses. This is 1 John 1 verses 6 and 7. It says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, that is koinonia with him, that is God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have, we are able to have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. According to these verses, koinonia, that biblical deep fellowship, 
is only possible when God's people are walking together in the light. That is, they're endeavoring to live according to the teachings of Jesus. They're endeavoring to walk together, living out God's truth. They're doing their best to live in obedience to Christ. If this is happening, genuine fellowship is possible. If this is not happening, genuine biblical fellowship is impossible. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where maybe a good friend, a believing friend, uh, falls into sin of some kind and they're in it in a kind of unrepentant way. They don't want to get out of it. They're just happy in that sinful place. Or maybe they walk away from God entirely. Uh, I was having a conversation with Nancy the other day and she was describing how this had happened to a relationship that she had And it did something profoundly to impact the relationship. You see, if that's the case, something happens to your ability to fellowship with them. And in fact, it is impossible to fellowship in this koinonia sense with them when they're in that state. You may still talk. You may still hang out. But something on the inside has changed. And it's this koinonia between you has effectively changed died. You see, koinonia requires a spiritual connection. And that spiritual connection is harmed significantly when willful sin is taking place. This doesn't mean that, you know, when I'm talking about they gave themselves to following Christ, doesn't mean that your relationships with other believers have to be really heavy all the time. Doesn't mean you always have to talk about the Bible doesn't mean you always have to be singing worship songs together. It doesn't mean you always have to be praying together. But it does mean that you at least have the potential to take your relationship past the point of mere friendship to something much, much deeper. They gave themselves to following Christ. The second thing I believe they did was that they gave themselves to one another. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter. 8 and verse 5, it says this, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. They gave themselves first to God and then they gave themselves to one another. What does it mean that they gave themselves to one another? Well, it means that they opened up their lives to one another. It means that they made themselves available to one another. It means that they made their possessions available to one another. It means that they committed themselves to one another, that they're willing to trust, that they were willing to allow the walls to come down and to let other people in. Much of society lives today keeping people at arm's length. In fact, Edinburghers, or Edinburghers, Edinburgh people, as the Glaswegians call us, um, have a particularly bad reputation for this. Keeping people at arm's length. Thankfully, we're not all from Edinburgh here. And so this isn't always the case. But koinonia will never happen if we live our lives keeping people at arm's length. Third thing I believe they did was that they met regularly. Something very, very practical, straightforward, and obvious. They met regularly. It says day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I love that. 
with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were full of joy when they came together and there was a deep authenticity about the way they related to one another. But more simply than that, what I want you to notice is the frequency that they met. It's just day by day. These people were not content with just a one-hour worship service on a Sunday morning and a free cup of tea after the meeting. They were just, that wouldn't have cut it for them. Let me say this. If you expect to build real koinonia relationships and experience real Christian community, you are going to need to be willing to invest more than the two hours on a Sunday morning. I don't believe that any church, no matter how perfectly honed the church culture is, no matter how rich the church DNA is, I don't believe it's possible really for deep koinonia friendships, relationships, fellowships to take place if all that exists is a Sunday morning large gathering like this. In fact, you know, Peter, a few weeks ago, maybe months ago now, had a slide on the screen with all of the one another's that uh, the Bible talks about. The New Testament is full of commands that involve the words one another, serve one another, prefer one another in love, um, pray for one another, etc., etc., etc. I would say if you analyze that list, you would probably find that the majority of those commands regarding one another are not even possible in a kind of environment like this. There has to be something else. It says day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. See, they were not content with just a, a gathering on a Sunday and that was all it was. They, they recognized the need for frequent forums, frequent gatherings, both big and small gatherings. It says in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. I would say to you, please, please, and this isn't a new plea, it's just one with a little more context, please, please join a home group. Please do that. It's the only way that more than likely you're going to come close to experiencing the kind of koinonia fellowship that we're experiencing. And do our home groups have a long way to go? Most probably. There's always room for improvement. But if we're going to have any hope of cultivating this new covenant community, then we're going to have to dedicate ourselves to at least giving that community the opportunity to come about in the first place. If you've tried a home group and it didn't work for you, well, try another one. Or perhaps it didn't work for you because you never really gave yourself to it in the first place. Maybe you need to go back, try again with a different attitude and a different level of commitment. Maybe there's not a group that meets in your area. Maybe there's not a group that suits the timing uh, that your life revolves around. Well, maybe it's possible that it's right for you to start a group yourself. And we'd love to investigate that with you, provided you're willing to fulfill certain criteria, most importantly, that you yourself are a genuine follower of Christ and are willing to keep following him and living for him. So if you want to join a group, a small group, a home group, or maybe you're interested in investigating, starting one yourself, please, please fill in an information card. Get it to us before the end of the meeting. Someone will contact you this week to discuss it. All relationships take time and investment. 
all relationships, not least these kind of deep relationships that I'm encouraging you guys to form. These were three things that I see uh, very clearly in the book of Acts, very simple things, but very necessary things to help establish this new covenant community that they all enjoyed. And we do well to emulate them. Having said all that, I'd now like to explore some areas with you that I think make all the difference to us becoming and sustaining a covenant community, a new covenant community here in Edinburgh. I'm going to look at a number of behaviors that either enhance or inhibit the forming of a koinonia people, a new covenant community. To help emphasize my points, I'm going to have three pairs of behaviors. One in the pair is going to be a negative behavior. One is going to be a positive behavior. The positive behavior I'm going to call covenant behavior. The negative behavior I'm going to call counter covenant behavior. And we're going to do this pantomime style. Who's been at a pantomime? Pantomime before. Here's a wave. Okay. And there's lots of audience participation, lots of booing and hissing and clapping and cheering. That's what we're going to do today. Okay. So I've got, not right now, get carried away. Not too much clapping and cheering. This is church. So here we go. Covenant versus counter covenant. I can't even say it myself. What hope is there for you? Covenant versus counter covenant behavior. Okay. And I've got six guests who I'm going to invite to just come and pin a behavior onto the front of this uh, little stage here. I've got some pins and some headings here. Give me a moment. In fact, uh, Angie, do you do me a favor? Can you pin covenant over there somewhere and counter covenant here just like that so that the guys can count those pins in there? Thank you. Let's hear it for Angie. Okay. Now, the first pair of behaviors we have is generosity versus selfishness. Generosity, are you here? Okay, is, is generosity, do you think, a covenant behavior or a counter-covenant behavior? Okay, well, let's welcome Christian in the means that is suitable for that kind of behavior. Generosity is indeed a covenant behavior. Unfortunately, Scots people do not have a good reputation for having this quality. However, New Covenant Christians, even Scottish New Covenant Christians, have to have this hallmark as one of the characteristics of their lives. If you read the book of Acts, you don't even have to read it carefully to establish that these people were incredibly, incredibly self-sacrificing and generous toward one another. Here's just one verse, and there are many like this. Uh, Acts 4 verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. Very, very challenging. And that's just one of many statements like that. And I'm not suggesting that we all go out and sell our houses and bring our money and have a big piggy bank with destiny written on it and we all share the proceeds or the ration it out in some way. But what I am suggesting that there is, is that there is plenty more room for a spirit and a culture of generosity to emerge 
amongst us. Do you agree? The Bible says in Galatians 6, verse 10, So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. It is the Christian duty to do good to all people, but we have a special covenant obligation to show generosity to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are many ways that we can show generosity. The most obvious probably is material or financial generosity, that is giving away money or things. Uh, And there's a great story I kind of heard in passing. Um, I was chatting to to one guy, I'll try and keep both parties anonymous in this story. Um, I was chatting to one guy who recently was in in the cafe there at the beginning of the service and I came up to him and he was wearing earphones and I was saying, hey, listen, what, what are you listening to? And he was telling me, I was, I'm just listening to some worship music. And he went on to tell me how he'd been sharing with uh, a particular guy in the church. And this guy's a, this guy's a new convert, the guy uh, who had the headphones. And he began to share with me how this fellow, who I don't think he really knew very well at all, had heard that he was a new Christian and really wanted to get into some worship music, wanted to listen to some. And he went out and bought him an iPod. Not like some naff, namby-pamby MP3 player. A a proper iPod, like a decent one. I was a bit jealous, actually. (laughs) And uh, he he bought this for him. He downloaded music onto it for him. And he gave him this as a gift. And I just thought, that's amazing. That is generous living. That's covenant living. Uh, Giving of money or things. The second way we can be generous is we can serve others. And this is very self-explanatory. Serving others just can be anything. It can be picking somebody up from hospital. It can be cooking them meals if they're pregnant or if they've been sick or if they've had a baby. It can be uh, teaching them how to drive. It can be helping them refurbish their flat. It can be helping them garden. It can, do any- it can be anything you want. Um, but just serving people with the Spirit of generosity. The third way we can operate in generosity is just through what I call observation. So that is, we hear things and we see things and we choose not to ignore them. Or we see things and we hear things that other people maybe don't see or hear. And what I mean by that is just maybe, for example, you see somebody in your team or in your home group or in your workplace whatever it might be, who is unusually stressed or under pressure. And you just choose to not ignore that. It would be very easy to ignore that. You yourself are most likely busy and have pressures and stresses yourself. Um, But choose not to ignore it and to try and do something, just something little even, if that's all you have time to do, just to ease the pressure on them. That's a generous way to live. Uh, Another example might be you're talking with someone and you're having just chit-chat, and you hear that they're moving in a couple of weeks' time, they're moving house. And you hear the date, and you say, well, rather than kind of just turning and saying, well, I hope it goes well for you, you try and remember the date, and you say, well, listen, I'll have a look at my diary, and I'll have a look and see if I'm available. And if I'm not available, I'll try and make sure that I can find somebody who is to help you, uh, help you move. That's just observation, and it's a generous observation, and it's a generous way to live. The New Covenant community is a generous community. Our next behavior is something called selfishness. Do you think selfishness is a covenant behavior or a counter 
covenant behavior. Okay, I, I told Linda to give the negative ones to people that looked like they had high health, self-esteem. Um, so it's selfishness here. This is, don't take this personally, Ian, okay? Ooh. Can you pin it? <laughs> Where are the pins gone? Are they on the table there? If you pin it in the right place. Let's hear for Ian as a person. But boo to the selfishness that you represent. Selfishness is obviously just simply a preoccupation with self. It's an ugly, ugly quality that is just rife in our society today. I have to admit that I'm ashamed to admit that I find myself battling with selfish thoughts and behaviors from time to time. So we need to analyze the way that we're spending our time. You know, are we serving others? Are we spending our time serving others? Or are we spending our time just merely serving ourselves? We've got to analyze our speech. Are we spending all of our time talking about ourselves? Or are we spending time being concerned for others? We need to analyze the way we're using our resources are they all being channeled toward our own personal comfort or are we making sacrifices so that other people can be blessed? Selfishness may be rife in our communities, but it has no place in a new covenant community. Second pair of behaviors, resolution versus resentment. Resolution, do you think, is that a covenant behavior? Stand up, James. Is that a covenant behavior or a counter-covenant behavior? Okay. You're not very enthusiastic, people. This is hardly like a pantomime at all. This is like the worst pantomime ever. Resolution. You know, we've talked about being a church family. Families are kind of interesting things, aren't they? You know, conflict often happens in families. At least it did in my family. Anyone growing up fight constantly with their brothers or sisters? I more or less continuously for about 18 years fought with my older brother uh, growing up. I more or less continuously lost those fights as well. Um, But what's interesting is that even celebrated Bible characters didn't see eye to eye all of the time. Even celebrated New Covenant Bible characters didn't see eye to eye all of the time. Peter and Paul um, had words at least on one occasion as recorded in the Bible. And here's a, a couple of verses written to the church at Philippi addressing two ladies in particular. Philippians 4 verses 2 and 3. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live together in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the gospel, together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is writing, saying, listen, mate, could you please help these women to get along? And what's interesting is that he goes on to say that these women were participants in the gospel. They served in the, in the gospel of God. They were good people. And moreover, Uh, their names were in the book of life. So these aren't, you know, rebellious sinners. These are people of God 
New Covenant believers who, for some reason, were at loggerheads, at least on one occasion, with one another. It's possible for two people, bona fide believers, servants of the gospel, names in the book of life, not always to see eye to eye and to struggle to get on with one another. Listen to this. Being in covenant with one another does not always mean that you will not fight and that you will always live in harmony with one another. What it does mean is that you will fight to see harmony restored with one another. That's what covenant means. You see, even in church, you'll be let down, you'll get hurt, and you will have many, many opportunities to be offended. But we must be committed to actively resolve conflict as it occurs. Sometimes what that'll mean is that we have to actually just swallow hard and overlook something that somebody has done. Peter taught about this some weeks ago. Sometimes it will mean, listen, this thing just isn't big enough to make a big deal of it. I'm just going to exercise grace. I'm going to swallow hard. I'm going to exercise the forgiveness that Jesus taught and that he offered to me toward this person. Sometimes what it will mean is confronting them, confronting them in love and in private in order to challenge their behavior and see a resolution brought. Sometimes what it will mean is after trying to do my last point is involving someone else to help mediate in the situation and bring resolve. But whatever it takes, whatever it takes, make sure that resolution is achieved. I want to encourage courage on two fronts. First of all, I want you to have the courage when you're, when you're offended And this isn't new stuff. I know it's not new stuff. But I just felt it'd be helpful to include in this, uh, in the context of what we're talking about, Covenant. I want to encourage, what was I talking about? Courage on two fronts. Um, So if you are needing to confront someone, if somebody's offended, you have enough courage to go and confront them in love by yourself. Don't tell it to 17 other people. That's not courageous. That's cowardly. Have the courage to talk to them. This is the spirit, this is the culture we want to see established here. Second front, I want to encourage courage. <laughs> I should have thought of another word for encourage. This, shouldn't I? Or, uh, second front, I want to urge courage on is uh, if you're on the receiving end of the confrontation. So if you're the person who's done the sinning or done the offending, you need to have courage when somebody approaches you. Sadly, and I've seen it all too often, when people are confronted and challenged about sin and about behaviors on their part that have been wrong, what I've seen happen is they walk away from church and they walk away from the situation. That is not covenant living. That is not the way we ought to live. If somebody comes to you and says, Graham, I really need to talk to you about this issue, have the humility, have the courage to hear them out. It is probable, it is very probable that God has something he wants to tell you through what that person is saying. It's even possible that it's something God has been wanting to tell you for a very, very long time. And you need to listen. You need to listen. And that's a courageous way to live. That's a covenant way to live. I don't know what number of behavior we're on right now. Um, But the next one is resentment, okay? There's resentment in the building today. Where's resentment? Oh man, Gareth, I didn't make you resentment, did I? He's such a nice guy. (laughs) Boo. 
Come on, say it like you mean it. Resentment. Is that a covenant behavior or a counter-covenant behavior? The pins are here. Counter-covenant is obviously a counter-covenant behavior. And I don't need to say a lot about resentment, but suffice to say that if you live with it, it will eat you up and it will profoundly affect your relationship with God, your personal relationship with God. Derek Prince said, if you talk about being right with God, but you do not have right relationships with your fellow believers, whether you know it or not, you are deceiving yourself. That's an impossible situation, is what he says. 1 John 4, 20 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's a pretty strong statement. For one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Resentment is a horrible, horrible thing. It kills churches, kills relationships, and it ought not to exist in a new covenant community. The last pair, and it's rather more cryptic, is called spurring versus snaring. Spurring. Do you think that is a covenant behavior or a, new, or a counter-covenant behavior? Spurring. What might that mean? And do you think, you think it's a covenant behavior? You are correct. Is spurring in the house? We're spurring. Hey, Linda. <laughs> what does spurring mean? Well, I've got some verses for you. Hebrews 10. Verses 24 to 25, it says, Let us consider how we may spur, say spur, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, true koinonia fellowship is not just about hanging out uh, as we've seen previously. It's taking your responsibility for one another seriously enough that you're not just interested in their physical well-being, but you're interested in their spiritual well-being as well. Their walk with God matters a great deal to you. Their maturing in the faith matters a great deal to you. So in your home groups, in the one-on-one relationships, the peer relationships in which you find yourself, ask yourself the question, am I really interested in this other person, this brother or sisters in Christ, in their relationship with God? Does that really matter to me? Have I really taken that seriously? Or have I just been content to, to hang out and enjoy their company? And that's okay. But what I'm suggesting is, that fellowship, koinonia fellowship, is just a lot deeper than that. And we need to maybe adjust our focus and give a bit more thought to how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Really, that's what discipleship is all about. Spurring. The second behavior in this couplet is called snaring. Do you think that is a covenant behavior? I'm hearing some people who are getting into the spirit of this. Go on. Can I have snaring? Come forward. Oh, Shana. She's such a nice lassie as well. Um, Let's hear it for Shana. (laughs) You don't know whether to boo or clap. Um, Clap, Shana, boo, snaring. 
The new covenant talks several times about the snares of the devil. The snares of the devil. Sin traps, if you like, that the enemy lays for God's people in order to catch them off guard and to drag them away from God. Sadly, even God's people, or at least those who are amongst God's people, can help Satan in his work by snaring others. And this is what uh, Jesus said to his disciples. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. In other words, they're inevitable. But he says, listen, woe to that person through whom they come. Woe to the person through whom they come. If your track record is dragging people down into sinful situations or out of fellowship with God's people, then, and you're unconcerned about that, then Jesus has got something to say to you. He says, woe to you. He says, you ought to be deeply concerned about that. You're in a very, very dangerous place. You're in opposition to God himself, and that is a very, very vulnerable place to be. And you need to repent, or you need to face the consequences, spurring versus snaring, encouraging people in their walk with God versus tripping people up, being a stumbling block to others in their walk with God. Those are three pairs of behaviors. I have three more, but you're gonna have to go to a home group this week to find out what they were, and you can investigate them further there. But just to sum up, you know, what we've seen is that God is just so, so, so committed to this covenant that he has established with humankind. It cost Jesus his everything. It cost him his life to bring it into being in the first place. Let's be people who recognize the weightiness, not just of our covenant with God, not just to value our covenant with God, but to value deeply at a far deeper level maybe than we have previously to value our covenant and our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's do all we can to see the full expression of this covenant outworked amongst us. Amen? Amen. I hope that today's message has helped you. If you want to find out more about us as a church, download more audio teaching, give us feedback, or make a contribution to our ongoing work and mission here in Edinburgh, please visit our website at destinyedinburgh.com. May God continue the great work that he is doing in your life.